but I'm Vince. Uh, I'm from Akron, Ohio. I'm a senior, double major in political science and PJHR with an Italian studies minor. Um, my favorite Pop-Tart flavor is chocolate fudge or strawberry, but it has to be, can't be toasted, cannot be toasted. And chocolate fudge, you gotta rip the corners off and just eat the middle. Favorite cereal is Frosted Flakes. I lived off of it freshman year in the calf. I love espresso. Uh, I currently own a 55 kilogram pound of Italian flour. And music is something that uh, I firmly believe speaks to the soul and is like my favorite type of prayer. Um, yeah, so this week, uh, as you know, the slide talks about, we're really kind of going to take a deep dive into suffering and direct experience. So, what is suffering? Um, I invite you guys to kind of sit there for a second and, and think on this, reflect on this. Um, because when I was asked this question by Jarrell, really I sat there and I was like, you can't really define suffering. You just know what it is. You know, like you can try to, you can, I looked it up on, you know, Urban Dictionary on Webster's Merriam, it was just jargon. You know, you can't fully define it, but you know it. And I thought that it was super, super interesting because if I bring to attention right, other things, other words specifically, you know, that you can't fully define, like the first one that comes to a lot of our minds, a lot of our hearts, is love. Right? So like this interesting balance between suffering and love, because they're both these things that we know inherently when we feel it, when we see it, but it's hard to define. So kind of building off of that, that just inherent being able to, to know what it is, I invite us to think about and reflect on our first experience of love. Like for me, I remember it was my great grandma's house on a Sunday dinner, great pasta, everybody was laughing. It was just that warm, fuzzy feeling of this is it. You know, that was love as a kid growing up. At the same time, on that opposite end of this balance is what was your first experience with suffering? You know, for me, there's two that jump to mind. The first one, um, it was funny, I was nine or ten years old, don't specifically remember, but I was on the way to a Cavs basketball game with my dad and brother, parked in Terminal Tower downtown. We were walking through the tunnel um, from, I forget the name, uh, Tower City Mall, whatever it's called. There's a, a tunnel that connects that to the queue, and I just remember walking through, and my dad in the middle, brother on one side, I was on the other side, and there's an individual, um, his head covered up in a scarf, he had a hat on over his eyes, and he was sitting there with a cup. And I was just, you know, I remember vividly, you know, as a nine or ten year old, just like something here, like that's not right. Something here just doesn't fit in. Kept going, went to the game, had a great time, but as a nine or ten year old, I was looking forward to the popcorn. <laughs> Fast forward a year or two, um, I remember sitting in a corner on Akron by the Akron Art Museum. And on the corner there was an individual with a sign, you know, saying, retired vet homeless, anything will help. Once again, I remember that feeling of like, I didn't understand what homeless meant, I didn't want to understand what a vet was, but I was like, again, it, something's not right there. Um, and so, right, life went on, I kept going, I kept going. Um, but I remember my freshman year of high school, I had the opportunity uh, to participate in the Labra program. I call this my Labra with a lowercase l experience, we'll touch on that later, but a Labra with a lowercase l. Um, I went in as a 14-year-old kid, and it was you know, supposed to be this big, life-changing experience that was going to open my eyes to everything. I went, had a cool time. I was like, okay, we passed out meals. I shook hands. It was cool. I got to see where these people live. 
Then I went home and that was kind of it. <laughs> and then fast forward two more years. I didn't go for two years. I'm on a two-year hiatus, as I call it. And my junior year, for some reason, someone asked me, they're like, hey, what are you doing Monday night? You should come on Mount Brook again. I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And this is when I call my lover with a big L, capital L, kind of changing of my heart. So what happened was, I remember going, first stop, there was an individual named Mike. Um, and we had four, or we had, we had, we had four batteries, and he came up and he goes, hey, I need three batteries for my radio, and Jason down at the campsite needs three batteries for his radio. We're like, Mike, no, I'm sorry, man, we only got, we got four batteries. And he goes, that's all right. You know, I'll take three, give them to Jason, and if you can next week, it'd be super cool if you could bring three, and then I could use it for my radio. And like that moment was one of those, this is an individual who, you know, experiencing homelessness and he had the opportunity to take these batteries for himself but gave them to someone else and so in my heart I was like wow you know that stuck with me that's a moment that continues today like it sticks with me every time I have the opportunity to go out on Labra with Walsh I see Mike and I'm like that's the moment where things started to change that was that first feeling in my life of wanting to do something about suffering so what I like to, to think about is this quote by Father Kolbenbach, who is awesome, is a superior uh, general of the Jesuits, which is like the president of the Jesuits. Uh, and he has this quote that when the heart is touched by direct experience, the mind may be challenged to change. When the heart is touched by direct experience, the mind may be challenged to change. And it was this big L Labra moment that really kind of caused that heart to be touched by a direct experience. My mind began to change. You know, I went home that night, I thought about it. It was the first time, I mean, when I tell you ever, the first time I went home and journaled. I didn't know what I was doing. I found a piece of paper and I just wrote out everything I was feeling. Um, and then I was hooked. You know, I went back the next week for Labra. I didn't know why, but I was like, I want to go back and I want to I want to see Mike again. And I actually ended up going 15 weeks in a row that junior year to senior year. In one of the most found moments kind of of my journey personally was it was like week three or four and we got to that first stop and I got out and Mike was like Vince how are you doing and I was like that hit you know like that that was it that was that moment where I was like okay I need to do something greater I need to do something to work towards you know alleviating the suffering walking with Mike um, and this you know continues to drive me today I had the opportunity Two summers ago to intern at the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless. Continue to work there today. I'm going to get into that a little bit more, but that's enough about me, enough about you know my personal little stories. Suffering and direct experience. We've touched on this suffering portion. We're going to get a direct experience. And so immersion programs at John Carroll, we take on this social change model. So what is the show the <laughs> social gosh, social change model? So this kind of merges two different things, and that's service and social justice. It kind of merges those together to go hand in hand, right? These aren't service trips, and these aren't social justice trips. They merge them together. They're immersion trips, right? We're immersing ourselves into these different cultures, into these different communities. So what does that mean to kind of merge these two together? So I'm sure many of you have heard it. Uh, it's one of my favorites. It's the parable of the river. We're going to read through it, break it down a little bit more through this lens of social change. This is the parable of the river. One day, a group of villagers was working in the fields by a river. 
Suddenly, someone noticed the baby floating downstream. The woman rushed out and rescued the baby, brought it to shore and cared for it. During the next several days, more babies were found floating downstream, and the villagers rescued them as well. But before long, there was a steady stream of babies floating downstream. Soon, the entire village was involved in the many tasks of rescue work, pulling these poor children out of the stream, ensuring that they were properly fed, clothed, housed, and integrating, integrating them into the life of the village. While not all the babies, now very numerous, could be saved, the villagers felt that they were doing what was well and to save as many as they could. But before long, the village became exhausted with all of this rescue work. Some villagers came up with the idea and suggested they go upstream and discover how all these babies were getting into the river in the first place and a mysterious illness stricken these poor children. Had the shoreline been made unsafe by an earthquake? Was some hateful, harmful person deliberately throwing them down the stream? Was an even more exhausted village upstream abandoning these children out of hopelessness? And from this stemmed a huge controversial eruption within the village. One group argued that every possible hand was needed to save the babies since they were barely keeping up with the current flow. And on the other hand, the other group argued that if they found out how these babies were getting into the water further upstream, they could repair this situation, which would then result in saving all the babies and eliminate every need for those costly rescue operations downstream. Don't you see, cried some, if we find out how they're getting in the river, we can stop the problem and no babies will drown. By going upstream, we can eliminate the cause of the problem. But it's too risky, said the village elders. It might fail. It's not for us to change the system. And besides, how would we occupy ourselves if we no longer had this to do? I'm going to open it up. Anybody can have opening thoughts about the parable in itself, how it might tie into that social change model of service and social justice. If not, that's okay. I think you give the option. You know, to me, I think on, on my two hands, like, right, social change, there's the service aspect. And this is the individuals that are fighting for downstream that are like, we're going to take all these kids, care for them as much as we can. Right? There's another, there are tons of versions of this parable, but one of them that I remember the first time I heard it was like, they built orphanages, they built houses, and this was like what they were doing. That was the service. They were taking these babies, putting them in there, and their work was done. That's all they had to do. Then on the other hand, right, that social justice aspect is going upstream, figuring out, okay, what's this cause? What's this cause? And I think that, right, these groups are arguing back and forth and back and forth. Of our way is right. No, our way is right. If you come together and figure out that middle ground, that social change model ground of, okay, we're going to be downstream, and we're going to care for the children that keep coming downstream, but at the same time, we're going to question what's going on upstream. We're going to send some people upstream to figure out, okay, maybe we can kind of figure out a way, whether it was an earthquake, whether it was, um, you know, there's some heinous crimes being committed, and there's terror being, you know, stricken throughout all of the town upstream. You know, so it's this middle ground, this path that connects the two of them where we have the opportunity in this social change model to stay downstream and 
keep you know, our roots strong in the service aspect of we're going to do what we need to do when these individuals come to us. But at the same time, going upstream, going to the source and being like, okay, yeah, we're helping, but let's, let's see what we can do to figure out ways in order to alleviate this from happening again. I think that right, is the biggest emphasis of immersion programs, right? Like we're, we're going to be downstream. But we also have the opportunity to challenge ourselves and go upstream. Okay, what are these root causes? Now, yeah, we can sit and we're going to listen to these individuals speak to us in the communities that we're going to and traveling to. And we're going to hear these stories. And you know, I hope that our hearts are touched by direct experiences and our minds are able to change. You know, that's that's what I hope at the core of all of this. But at the same time, you know, we're going to be going upstream and figuring out, okay, what can we do to try and, and figure out how to better accompany these individuals, you know, that are going through these things. And so. With that, I want to end with a little quote that I came across two nights ago. Uh, I was struggling, but I was figuring out writing this. And I opened up a book. It's this little story, parable, poem book uh, by Anthony DiMello, this Jesuit who's total BA. And I'm going to read through this twice. And I really, really challenge you guys to reflect on this, to sit with it, uh, because it's something that, I mean, it really, like, it sits with me still. And it's something that I haven't been able to get out of my mind the last 48 hours. What on earth are you doing? Said I to the monkey when I saw him lift a fish out of the water and place it on a tree. I'm saving it from drowning, was the reply. What on earth are you doing? Said I to the monkey when I saw him lift a fish from the water Place it on a tree. I'm saving it from drowning, was the reply. And I think that this just more than anything emphasizes, right? We're not there. We're not going on these immersion trips to be the individual that's you know pulling the fish out. It's accompaniment. It's being there with these individuals. Right? It's immersing ourselves in the communities, the cultures, the experiences. And that accompaniment is what everything's built off of, you know, seeing eye to eye, walking hand in hand. Thanks.